You're listening to the Pastor Writer Podcast, Episode 20. In today's podcast, I'm joined by the great author Oz Guinness. It was a real honor to be able to have him on the podcast, and I think you'll find this podcast really encouraging. We talk primarily about his book, Fool's Talk, and about how the church and pastors in particular, writers as well, can re-embrace the idea of creative persuasion that Oz points out from the work of all the great prophets of the Old Testament on through to our Lord Christ himself. You'll find encouragement in this episode about Oz's own writing life, his own calling to write, as well as what it looks like to embrace that calling as a pastor. Oz's work is always prophetic as well as encouraging, and this conversation was just as I expected. I hope you enjoy. Well, joining me today on the podcast is Oz Guinness, probably an author who goes without much of an introduction. Uh, one of my favorite authors, somebody who's meant a lot to me. Oz was born in World War II era China, where his parents served as medical missionaries. And returning back to Europe, he did most of his studies at the University of London and Oxford. His bio lists him as both an author and a social critic. He served a variety of organizations from the Woodrow Wilson Center to the Brookings Institute, uh, the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. He's the author and editor of more than 30 books, some of personally my favorite books being The Call, Prophetic Untimeliness, which is really a must read. And the one that I'm excited to be able to talk through today with him is the book Fool's Talk. So Oz, thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, Chase. Thank you. Well, the book, as I mentioned, that I want to spend a little bit of time focusing on today is your book, Fool's Talk. And the book itself, uh, I think it describes itself as not just being a book about apologetics, but really being the way that we approach apologetics versus a book kind of just laying out a list of arguments. Uh, in the book, you try to say that how we approach apologetics or how we approach Christian communication through what you call creative persuasion is important. And if I could uh, maybe just read a section from the introduction of the book to sort of set that topic up. The back of the book, there's a blurb, and in the blurb it says, Christians have often relied on proclaiming and preaching, protesting and picketing, but we are strikingly weak in persuasion. And then you go on to write in the introduction, in short, many of us today lack a vital part of a way of communicating that is prominent in the Gospels and throughout the Scriptures, but largely absent in the church today, persuasion. The art of speaking to people who, for whatever reason, are indifferent or resistant to what we have to say. They simply do not agree with us and are not open to what we have to say. So, thinking about this idea, uh, why is it that the church has lost this art of persuasion as you describe it? And uh, what does it mean to rediscover or to find this, this creative persuasion that you write about in the book? Well, I think a single single simplest reason is the collapse of the Christian consensus. In other words, countries like the U.S. or many of our European countries or the English-speaking world at large, you know, they were shaped by a Jewish-Christian consensus that came from the Scripture. So as late as the 1950s, you could almost say everyone understood Christian, even if they didn't talk it themselves. And so something like the Billy Graham era was very natural and incredibly fruitful. But starting in the 60s, there's been an explosion of what's called pluralization. Everyone is now everywhere, which means that private life has become much more diverse, pluralistic, and public life has become much more secular, and the Christian faith has been drowned out in many places. Or you look at the rise, say, of what's called cultural Marxism, or the, I call it the heirs and allies of the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, 
you know, they have started to become extremely powerful. And now in the universities, in the press and media, and in the world of entertainment, they're dominant. And they're not just an alternative. They are deliberately hostile to the Christian faith. You could take the recent case of the Supreme Court and uh, Jack Phillips and his, um, his wedding cake. You know, the Civil Rights Commission views of what he was doing weren't just that religious freedom was being weaponized against gays. They gave an alternative view that Christian faith was evil and repressive. And that's just one example. You can see across the board today, we can't take the Christian consensus for granted any longer. And we need to do justice to the open attacks or the indifference or whatever it is we face in our, in our culture. Well, and part of the path that you recommend is this idea of creative persuasion. And part of what has me so interested in this conversation for those listening is um, that's not just a work that an apologist does on a stage somewhere, but this idea of Christian persuasion, creative persuasion is really something that works itself out in conversations. It works itself out in the sermons we preach, the writing that we take up. What does that, that art of Christian persuasion look like that you're hoping Christians in, in this time can learn to, to re-engage with? Well, we need to rehabilitate apologetics. It's become a kind of exercise for eggheads, for intellectuals. But if you look at the scripture, evangelism and apologetics are one. You know, evangelism is the sharing of the good news, obviously most powerful for people who know they're in a bad situation, good news for the bad situation. But apologetics comes in for all those who don't think they're in a bad situation, who are indifferent or openly resistant. And apologetics is then the ground-clearing exercise. So that's why it needs to be creatively subversive in order to be persuasive. And we need to rehabilitate apologetics and reform it according to some of the biblical principles we see powerfully from the beginning to the end of the scriptures. I love this idea. You use the word subversive. Uh, it's actually one of my favorites. Uh, Eugene Peterson will talk about prayer being subversive, that when we choose to pray, we're engaging the world uh, as it really is, but subverting it, right? So introducing something new to it. This idea of communication, particularly Christian communication in this world that really is characterized by sort of um, extremes and, and rhetoric that tends to not listen, uh, but sort of finds its identity just in what it's saying. What does it mean to enter into these conversations, enter into this world, in a subversive way for the sake of the gospel? Well, clearly we've got some very hostile ideas against them, and it's no use just simply being on the back foot, as if King Canute light, we can stop the tide coming in. No, there are very powerful ideas, and we need to dismantle them before the Lord with the power of the Holy Spirit and so on. And that's what I mean by subversion, getting into ideas, showing how they don't work, how they work out extremely badly, and opening up people's minds to a massive rethink, which, of course, is the beginning of metanoia, a repentance, or what the Jews call teshuva, and so on. So we need to have a, a style of communication that can do that. For example, you see in the scripture that as soon as people are resistant, disobedient, uh, disbelieving, or whatever, there's a shift from communication that's open and in statements to statements that are questions and are much more subversive. Because you think of a question, it's indirect. You don't know where it's going, and it's involving. The person questioned has to do the work for themselves, whereas a statement 
is take it or leave it. If you're interested in what the speaker is saying, then you're interested and you, you listen carefully. If you're not interested, you don't listen. Whereas a question challenges the listener to get into it for themselves and to think it through. And that's incredibly biblical from Genesis 3. You know, Adam, where are you? Did the Lord not know where they were? Of course he did. But his question to Adam and Eve smokes out their acknowledgement of what it is they've done in taking the fruit that was forbidden and so on. And you can see from then onwards through Scripture, the art of question raising is a key part of Christian and uh, biblical subversion. One of my favorite parts of the book is the way you do this. You track through some of these biblical stories, and uh, you help us recognize that this persuasion you're talking about is not just some modern technique that we can put into practice uh, to deal with kind of the complexities we have now, but it really is at the heart of so much of the work that's going on in Scripture. So at one point you refer to the prophetic subversion, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament who are doing what you're describing, sort of entering into uh, to, uh, uh, Israel's current thinking and subverting it through questions or actions. And then you track that all the way through, of course, into then the way Jesus has conversations, saying at one point that one of the distinctives of Jesus is that he doesn't have the same conversation with two different people, but he's entering into each conversation, recognizing and subverting some of the hostility and, and the roadblocks that people have towards hearing his words. Um, thinking about this idea as center to being characters of the Bible, Jesus Christ himself, the prophets themselves, um, that's really the grounding for you of where this art of persuasion comes from, correct? Well, I think we begin, Chase, in what you said in that, by abandoning all the one, two, three, four methods, because methods simply don't fit the extraordinary diversity and flexibility of situations and people we're going to encounter today. Our Lord, as you said, putting me, never talk to two people the same way, and nor should we, because each person is different with their own story, their own objections and questions and aspirations and so on. So we should abandon all these simplistic methods that don't work and, and go down to a far deeper biblical lesson that begins by loving people enough to listen to them and discovering where the treasure of this person's heart is and then directing whatever we say to that. Now, the second thing you, you, you say is our Lord himself, you know, God becoming man to reach humans. This is incredible, and that's the beginning of subversion. Of course, the ultimate subversion is the cross itself. So we see our Lord defenseless as a baby in a crib, and then derelict and hammered, executed to a cross. And yet that is the most powerful subversion of the resistance to God in all history. And we've got to learn, and our apologetic should be cruciform, cross-shaped in that way, and equally subversive. It's a great image because uh, I think you're right. We, When we think about this idea of being an apologist, especially in sort of the, the way that the world communicates right now, we sort of imagine ourselves, you know, in front of a room with these sharp phrases and arguments and being able to sort of withstand the heat of someone else's attack and sort of a, a crowd cheering at the end that we've won the battle of argument. And to say that Christian persuasion is instead this idea, you're right, of a, a cruciformed communication, of really entering in in a kind of weakness this idea of fool's talk as you describe it. Um, one of the things of the book that I think is so prophetic for you is this idea of, of giving up our ambition of technique. If I could maybe read a paragraph from that chapter um, and delve a little 
little bit more into it because I think it's a real intersection for pastors as well as pastors who are thinking about writing. Um, you write in the book at one point, our modern lust for technique comes from the fact that we live in the great age of how-to. The age of technology and technique is the age of endless methods and formulas, recipes, seminars, how-to manuals, 12-step programs, and the constant lure of efficiency. Our temptation, then, is to pursue the admirable goal of becoming more persuasive and to fall into a common trap, becoming preoccupied with technique as if persuasion could be learned by observing the process carefully, reducing it to reason, revising it, and then repeating it ourselves. Um, You write in the book that this is a real challenge for particularly ministers and churches, but Christians in general, that we would try to practice this kind of communication as just something that could be picked up, as you said, in three steps. Um, How do we get ourselves past that temptation that seems to be so prevalent right now in the way we do church, the way we do writing, the way we do uh, speaking as Christians as a whole community? Well, I was reading in my own worship this morning, the first chapter of Jeremiah, where the Lord critiques his people for, quote, worshiping the works of their own hands. And you can see the temptation today that technology has become one of our modern gods. This idea you can reduce everything to simple steps and run it through, repeat it, and make it scalable, etc., etc. In other words, reduce everything to reason. And technology does that the way say, the theistic proofs for God did that in the medieval times. But the heart of the gospel is where we couldn't discover God, he reveals himself to us. And so the story of faith is the story of God's search for us, far more than our search for him, however noble the seeker is. And we've got to realize that, that a huge amount of modern life is highly rationalistic, either through type of arguments or through the overuse of technology and methodology, whereas the heart of the incarnation is God becoming one of us, and we've got to be vulnerable in that way by really going to the people we're trying to reach as a human being to other human beings and get into the under the skin of their world, feeling their pains and so on, and it's a very, very different approach. You see the American church has exported this sort of trust in technology throughout much of the whole of the world. And that's, it's an absolute disaster because it leads away from a reliance on the Holy Spirit and a reliance on becoming incarnate to other people as followers of Christ reaching out. Yeah, it's definitely something as a pastor and writer myself, I, I've, I've seen become a temptation. Um, so much of the advice that you get handed, uh, whether it's standing in a pulpit or leading a congregation or whether it is in trying to approach writing, so much of it is uh, you go online, you find articles, you find YouTube videos, and what they do is they break down, here's the process, do it this way, put it in a place like this, and you're going to have this success. And you're really saying that this kind of dependence on technique is one of the things that keeps us from being able to listen, from being able to really enter into these conversations and subvert them in in ways that uh, that become truly persuasive. Well, that's right. It's one of the reasons the Western church has become so secular at the expense of the supernatural. And modernity does that. If you look back in the not-so-recent past, what was unseen was not unreal. But in the modern world, what is the real world? The unseen is unreal. My mentor, Peter Berger, used to put it, we live in a world without windows. And so many modern Christians, sadly many pastors in their methods, they're actually functional atheists. 
uh, operationally atheists unawares. And apologetics, we are the junior councils. Who's the senior council? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. He's doing the real prosecuting, the conviction, and so on. And we're merely junior councils working under him and for him, and so on. And we've got to escape a lot of the rationalism. Both of our arguments, as you said earlier, you know, you get you get flashing apologists and give these great arguments, and they win the argument but lose the audience. Or we do it through a reliance on technology as if that could substitute for the biblical way. I think a lot of the talking that goes on in those cases, too, and I think it's sort of the way of our culture right now, is we tend to not be talking to the people that are actually in front of us. Uh, a lot of the talking we do is to sort of the group we're a part of, sort of an, uh, saying the right thing to be in on the identity. Or I think a lot of the talking we do, if we could be honest enough to admit it, is is us trying to convince ourselves as we're talking about it. There's this great little quote you have uh, in the beginning of the book from Montague, who you quote as saying, one should not always so exhaust a subject that one leaves the reader with nothing to do. The point is not to make men read, but to make men think. Um, I wonder if one of the problems that we face as Christians is we do so much talking, so much communicating, so much writing and tweeting and posting, um, but maybe not as much time actually thinking and knowing what it is we're trying to say, that much of the talking may just be us trying to figure it out as we go. No, you put it very powerfully there, and I think... Sadly, a lot of pastors are out, out of touch with the real pagans. You know, if, if, for example, why are the artists often the most alienated people in the church? And then very oddly, why are the business people second only to artists in feeling alienated? And the reason is simple. You know, many pastors will speak about, say, marriage crises with deep conviction and emotion because they hear the anguish of a broken family or whatever in their studies and offices every week. And so it's sort of simple to reach out to that world when they preach, but they don't hear the agony of the sea but his ethical decisions or whatever. They're just in a different world. And I think today we have to make a real effort to make sure as you profile the congregation that the pastor is speaking to all of them and knows the world they're in, business people, lawyers, computer scientists, et cetera, et cetera, you know, as well as people in their families. You know, I try and read the opposition and make a point. I, for example, I tend to say read a book of Nietzsche, who to me is the arch-atheist and anti-Christian. He called himself that. I try and read a book of his every year. I'm now reading The Will to Power, which is no easy reading. A lot of it's repetitive, but it, I always feel that, that I'm trying to punch and uh, train against some of the toughest thinkers and not just low-hanging fruit. Yeah, you say too in uh, in the book, which was to me, uh, you were speaking very personally, but I think it could be picked up as a call for all all pastors, all writers. You say at one point, um, I've waited nearly 40 years to write this book because of a promise made to God. When I was leaving university, I promised that I would always do apologetics rather than simply write about it, that I would do it before writing about it. And I would do it more than writing about it. Uh, it really struck me as a, a, a powerful sort of line to sort of tuck away into my own identity that what really matters here when it comes to, to 
communicating, when it comes to persuasion, when it comes to writing, when it comes to pastoring and speaking and preaching is the Christian's call is to do this, not just to know about it, not just to talk about it, not just to write about it, but first and foremost, this has to be something that is done. Um, you've written 30 books, so that's uh, a lot of writing. There has to have been a lot of doing to keep that <laughs> in balance. Uh, I'm curious how that's worked itself out in your life and your ministry, this emphasis on doing before speaking. Well, to me, that's incredibly important. You know, the, I'm no fan of Karl Marx, put it mildly, but I do like this quotation. Philosophers have interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. And of course, biblically speaking, we don't know what we don't do. And it's the doing and being responsible for what we know that is the heart of knowing biblically. And there's a huge amount of wheel spinning in the church with people talking about apologetics and apologetics, and their methods are sharper and sharper, but they're basically just talking to themselves. And and this is very sad. We've got to go out to the world outside the church and by God's grace really win them, because we're at today an incredible spiritual, intellectual, moral, cultural battle. And uh, we've got to be careful the way we respond to battle. But in the unseen world, it is truly a battle that requires supernatural warfare. But you can see that while the roots of our Western culture are Greek to some extent, Roman to some extent, think of governance, the principal debts of the West, gifts of the West, are to the scriptures. And things like human dignity and freedom and justice and history, all sorts of things like this, we take for granted, but they are the gifts of the scripture, and they're going. And we'll soon be in a very, very different culture. Freedom will go, human dignity will go, and you can see many areas. And so this is an extraordinary moment. And the scandal of the American church, let me put it bluntly, is that in this country, unlike, say, most of the rest of the English-speaking world and much of Europe, in this country, Christians are a huge majority. By any standards, we're more than 70% of America. And tiny groups like, say, wonderful groups like our Jewish friends, they're 2% of America, but they punch way above their weight. Or groups that we disagree with and who disagree with us, like the LGBT community, 2% of America, and yet their influence is far, far greater than that. And we, who are a huge majority, are not salty, not light-bearing. And this is the scandal of the American church, and we need Reformation revival. Apologetics is only one side of it, but it's a very key side of it. Uh, what do you think's led to it? Has it been a sort of um, a tiredness from sort of ongoing cultural conflicts that Christians have sort of just allowed this sort of divide from public and private life to take effect? Do you think it's um, uh, a lack of dealing with these questions for themselves, that they just feel themselves unprepared to be able to wrestle with them? Where, where does that, uh, that problem arise uh, for us as a church? Well, you could literally give a dozen answers to that in terms of the internal problems and why the church is not responding well. But I would focus today, too, to brace people on the external problems. I mean, you can see that, say, uh, the American Revolution owes everything to the Bible. I mean, many Christians don't know that the notion of constitution, the U.S. Constitution, comes from the Jewish covenant, rediscovered through the Reformation. And yet today you can see that ideas that come from the French Revolution through the 
enlightenment had come down through Nietzsche and Marcuse and Gramsci and Foucault and people like this, they are behind so much of what's happening. Now, it's 50 years ago, this, well, go back even to the 1920s, the key person who said that Marx was wrong, you wouldn't have revolution in the streets, was Antonio Gramsci in his prison notebooks. And he said, no, you've got to win the cultural hegemony, control of a culture. And 50 years ago, the leader of the Red Brigade, I remember this as I was a student, he said, um, we've got to have a long march through the institutions. And they've done that. And in that long march, copying Hao Zedong, as it were, they've won the universities, they've won the press and media, and they've won the world of entertainment. In other words, the culture-shaping parts of America. And the church has, frankly, been asleep. And we can't just respond defensively or think we can turn it back politically. We can't. We've got to really engage with the ideas, and some of them are extremely dangerous and extremely destructive. And America is at a very critical hour. It could soon be too late. And pastors are a key part because many Christians are simply not living or speaking biblically. So let's take an example of a, of a pastor who may be listening to this now, and um, he's intrigued by this idea of becoming better at persuasion, recognizing that just sort of memorizing the arguments of apologetics isn't enough. Uh, he, this is something he wants to grow in, something he feels some responsibility in. We've already sort of said it's not as simple as downloading a YouTube video or finding a blog post with 10 steps and putting them into practice, that this is going to take some kind of incarnational living. Uh, what's your advice for a pastor to begin this process of, of learning to become more persuasive, of learning to listen, of learning to engage in more subversive ways? Well, of course, in the average church that's a good church, you won't need persuasion Sunday to Sunday because the people come open, eager, ready to listen and to obey. And so you don't need persuasion, you just need good teaching. There are occasional topics, say money or the sexual revolution, where we lay people, I'm a lay person, you know, we tend to hold on to our wallets and so on. And you need a bit of persuasion there. But what I'm talking about is teaching them to engage with the wider world through their callings. And that's where the pastors often don't do that so well. So the pastors have to know the wider issues. They have to know the world into which their people are going. And they should do a profile of the congregation. How many of them are homemakers, teachers, scientists, engineers, industrialists, whatever, and make sure they know those worlds and they address what it means to live called by Jesus into those spheres. And if they do that, the pastor's like a coach. And then his team, the congregation, go out Monday to Saturday living well, playing on the field, as it were, and making a difference. That's the sort of challenge. We, we've got to see the pastor as a coach to a team being sent out to live for the kingdom. I've mentioned on the podcast before that uh, the church that I currently pastor, uh, I am bivocational. So we planted the church about six years ago, and the church has – it's been at a point where probably I could be full-time with the church, but we've actually been kind of intentionally slow with that, uh, this being one of the reasons that I find working in the marketplace, uh, those relationships, uh, putting in the time and just like members of my congregation has actually really aided me in preaching and in understanding my role of pastor and credibility with the congregation. Uh, one of the things I think does happen as you're describing to pastors so often is we find ourselves sort of inoculated in, 
this this bubble of the church mm-hmm. and, and really finding it difficult to understand, as you've pointed out, what it really is like to to work in a workplace, to have that faith put into question by workplace decisions day in and day out, and to try to figure out how to navigate that. Um, I do uh, freelance web design and development, so I find myself in this marketing arena quite a bit where I constantly am finding questions about how my Christian faith interacts with the way marketing is working in in our culture today. Um, And there are real deep challenges that had not personally have I walked through if I had just sort of read in a book, here's the answer to dealing with marketing questions. It's a totally different place to come from than having really walked through and wrestled those myself. No, that's terrific, Chase. And with the more pastors, many of them are naturally full-time in their churches, um, unlike you and the privilege you have, but they need to be aware of it. You know, for instance, our pastor, he'd be the first to say, he realized at a certain point many years ago that he was really addressing people, hoping they'd all become ministers like him or youth directors and so on. And he needed to go out. Here we are in Washington. Go down to K Street. Go up to Capitol Hill. How were the politicians thinking, living, struggling? How were the lobbyists and business people on K Street thinking, living, and struggling? And so he had lunches to try and get to know where his people were. And that deepened and challenged his preaching in order to reach out to them. And that's why I say every pastor should have a profile of their congregation and the callings into which they're working. I would tease you gently, you're not actually bivocational, you're bi-occupational, because <laughs> vocation is simply another word for calling. Mm. You know, and here in Washington, some people go wrong by talking about vocational calling. Well, that's nonsense. It means calling, calling. In other words, you're in two jobs. That's wonderful. But it's one calling to follow the Lord in both jobs. Yeah, sometimes I'll refer to them as my callings, that uh, these callings combine into what is this vocation. You're right. Um, I think pastors, uh, they do, they do have this remarkable challenge because so often, uh, pastors tend to think of the people in their congregations, I think, as sort of the unrenewable resource, right? That we have to mine out and then put into place to build the church. And really quickly, we, we sort of strip people in our congregation of anything but the skill set that we can leverage within our services, within our programs. And I think you're right. We end up reducing people, these callings, this vocation that people have down into just the ways that they can be used to build the church bigger. And so for pastors finding themselves able to step outside the walls of that church and recognize all of the ways that God is using their congregation, the people in it, within careers, within occupations, within family structures, within society, um, it really is an entirely new perspective on what it is to be a, a pastor of those people. Well, it's not entirely new. It's going back to the Reformation and in a way back to the early church. You know, let me describe a moment when our churches turned around many, many years ago. There was a Sunday there in which our pastor called for a recognition of calling Sunday. I thought, this is terrific. But then he called people who at all sorts of levels in the church, right down to flower rangers, up to the deacons, all sorts of things. What was striking to me as a visitor, what about the congressmen, senators? We had one astronaut then. They were sitting on their hands. Their work was completely unrecognized because he'd only called out people in the church or in spiritual gifts. And that was a disaster. And when it was turned around, well, then the salt becomes salty and the light becomes light-bearing because you're training people to advance the kingdom out into the wider world. And that's a different challenge. 
Well, uh, it's honestly, we, we could have a whole other hour conversation about, as I mentioned, your book on calling is just, uh, honestly, I think it's probably one of the, the classics from this era of Christianity. I know so many people that have, that book has meant so much to them. Uh, I'm curious, uh, how you, when you began to recognize that writing was a part of your calling, uh, obviously it's been a part of what you do for quite some time now, but there had to be a point where you began to recognize that that was something God was leading you into. Well, in terms of the book, um, the publishers have kindly just brought out a 20th anniversary edition, and I've added four chapters. I hope that will will do well. But well, I'm going to have to update myself, my copy I, then. I think I have the older one. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I fell into writing accidentally, as it were. Never set out to do it. Of course, as in our English education, you write everything. No multiple choice options type of thing. You write everything. Well, I was giving a series of lectures on the 60s at La Brie. And someone said, why don't you write it? And I sloughed it off several times and then eventually thought, well, why not? So I tried and it became my first book, The Dust of Death, and I enjoyed doing it. Well, the writing is exceedingly hard work um, and it did well. And I sort of wrote a second and a third and gradually fell into it. So I'm, I'm not the greatest writer in the world, but it, for me, it comes from a message which the Lord's given me that uh, burns in your heart and you want to express, and I try and do it through writing. Maybe you could give some advice. I think it's a good place. Some people, when I ask that question about their call to writing, it's, you know, since I was a, a young child in my room writing stories, I knew that writing was a part. My my path is a little bit more like yours. It's not something more that I've discovered later in life um, as this sort of, as you describe it too, this just desire to put it down, sort of not quite knowing more than that, but just this is what it seems to be what God is asking me to do. There are a lot of young pastors who are sensing this calling to write and wrestling with what that looks like in combination with their uh, their calling as pastor. Maybe you could give some advice to some of these pastors for uh, for what it looks like to embrace this call of writing. Well, one side for me, I remember when I wrote my first book, We Are Living in Switzerland, and I was in my 20s climbing mountains. And you, you watched English and American climbers. They'd climb for 15, 20 minutes, take a break, or an hour and take a break. Whereas the Swiss were just like metronomes step after step after step, all the way to the top without stopping. And, and I learned from that in terms of writing. The first day, you look at it and think, this is terrible. No, this isn't really worthwhile. At the end of the week, something starts to come. And the lesson is that the days when you're writing through perspiration count just as much as the days you're writing through inspiration. In other words, it's hard work. And too many people think of it as a creative thing, which it is, but it's something that comes through incredible inspiration. If you don't have that, you just stare at the page. No, no, you just got to work hard of it. Often someone told me that they thought writing was the closest that a man can come to having a baby. In other words, incredibly hard work and labor, but an immensely pleasurable joy and outcome at the end. But perspiration, not just inspiration. Yeah, patience uh, might be the, the the highest calling of the writer. Uh, just the, I do think it takes a remarkable amount of faith because there's so much of it that's unknown when you start. And so uh, just the willingness to keep showing up, to keep working, to keep trusting that God is leading this. I think that's right, to just kind of trudge along, believing. Uh, 
Well, Oz, uh, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, what an incredible conversation. I can't, for people listening, recommend uh, these books highly enough. Uh, Fool's Talk, uh, the one that we've just kind of touched on here in the end, Calling, as well as many, many more. Uh, what are the best ways, as you continue to write or uh, continue to speak, the best ways people can just follow your work, be able to stay in touch? Uh, maybe you could give us some of those links to be able to follow. Well, that's kind of you. I would say I've got a new version of my website coming up in a week or two. Great and improved, and uh, my books are available through Amazon.com. But whether it's mine or other great writers, Christian or secular, it's a time for pastors to really engage with this incredible world we're in and the moment that we're facing, and by God's grace, to address it with confidence and power in the gospel and in the scriptures as a whole. Incredible moments, time to shift from the, the back foot, where many people are, to the front foot, because it's the biblical truths and the heart of the gospel that will be the key to the human future itself. Well, it's not only an encouragement, but also, I think, a prophetic word uh, just to spur us on to that. So thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, like I said at the beginning, uh, your writing has meant so much to me. So it's a real honor just to be able to have this conversation. And Thank you for that work that you've done. Well, great to be with you, Chase, and God bless you and all you're doing. As always, you can find links to both Oz's website as well as the books mentioned in today's episode by going to the show notes at pastorwriter.com slash 20. If you haven't already, I would appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes or Facebook. Reviews are a great way for me to be able to have feedback about the podcast and also help new people, new listeners find the show. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.